Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we talk with the creator of a new fiction podcast, all about being gay and Korean-American in Downey, still living at home with mom. My mom doesn't speak English well, and I don't speak Korean well. There is that struggle of trying to have basic conversations, and, and we're just not able to communicate. Plus, we hear about an unusual high school reunion in L.A., celebrating a time before the Iranian Revolution. It was just my love and passion for my friends. I never thought of them being Jewish or Muslim or rich or poor. We were just friends. But first, how teachers from California are making a difference in the lives of migrant kids at the border. A lot of these children are in a state of suspended childhood. Like their childhood just ended on that day when suddenly mom or dad just said, you know, we're, we're leaving. I'm Sasha Coca, and you're listening to the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. These days, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by all the distressing news out there. Uncertain about how any of us can make any kind of meaningful change in the world. I want to tell you a story now about two women from very different backgrounds who each decided to try to make a small difference in what feels like a big crisis. It starts on a winding narrow street on top of a steep hill in Tijuana at a refugee shelter where Leticia Herrera Hernandez, everybody calls her Doña Leti, is ladling out beans onto paper plates. Adultos, adultos. Leti runs this Catholic shelter, which these days is home to more than 150 people, crammed into three rooms and two makeshift spaces outside, covered with tarps, sharing four bathrooms, one washing machine. Entire families crammed onto a single mattress. Across the street, in a light-filled house, children are painting while listening to classical music, building with colorful magnetic blocks, wooden toys, silk curtains, comfy couches, crayons organized by color in rows of glass jars. Everything feels spacious and orderly, even beautiful. You might think that beauty, where does beauty fit into the tragic lives of a migrant or refugee, but all the more reason for beauty because everyone needs beauty in their life and they're sure not getting it. This is Elise Schaefer Ivy. She ran a private early childhood education center in Santa Monica for more than three decades. She created this center called The Nest. It's the first school of its kind in Tijuana for kids living in a migrant shelter while their families wait to apply for asylum in the U.S. 
because a lot of these children are in a state of suspended childhood. You know, like their childhood just ended on that day when suddenly mom or dad just said, you know, we're, we're leaving. Like their whole life as they know is just on hold for a while. She's watching a three-year-old named Kevin playing with colorful silk scarves. He's waving them over a clear plastic tube attached to a fan, so the pieces of silk shoot up into the air. Again, again, he shrieks. Kevin and his mom arrived at Doña Leti's shelter across the street two months ago from Michoacan. A violent cartel was threatening their town, extorting people for money, kidnapping, and killing them. So Kevin's mom, Julieta, we're not using her real name for safety reasons, got on a bus and traveled three days to Tijuana. Kevin arrived shaken and angry. Julieta says he had a hard time adapting, accepting the crowded shelter as their home. He would hit other kids and yell at them. Julieta says since the nest opened last month, Kevin's learned to listen better. She doesn't have to grab him so he pays attention. Research shows kids who have a hard time adjusting socially before age five have a lot of trouble catching up. Elise Schaefer says if kids like Kevin can play and relax away from the stress of the crowded shelter, it could give them some sense of stability. This isn't a Band-Aid solution. It isn't, this isn't sweetening the day of a child who might be stuck on a mattress in a shelter. I mean, yes, of course, we're sweetening the day of that child, but it's so much more than that. This is about really setting a trajectory that will have impact. The whole idea of the nest started with a trip Elise took to Greece. The school she used to run sent her and her husband on a trip to Lesbos as a retirement gift they happened to meet a relief worker who invited them to visit a refugee camp. Most of the migrants there were from Syria and Afghanistan. So I started to pay attention to what are the children doing here, and they're digging in the dirt, they're playing with nails. In their pockets they had old cigarette lighters that they had found, I mean, there was nothing for children. Elise impulsively offered to create a program for them. She returned to LA and tapped her private school network to raise $10,000 in 48 hours. Eventually, she set up a second nest in Greece, then two more in the Congo. Early childhood teachers, many of them from California, volunteer for a week or two at a time at these nests. They train refugees from the shelters or camps nearby to work with young children, a skill that could help them get a job if they get asylum in a new country. While she was setting up these nests around the world, Elise was painfully aware of the refugee crisis at the border just hours from her home in L.A. Then she visited Doña Leti's shelter in Tijuana, and the two women instantly connected. Leti had already set up a makeshift elementary school next to her shelter, in an old bus. But she had nothing for younger kids. She says they were just playing on their parents' phones most of the day. Now Leti says she's really seen the kids change a lot. You can see it in their faces. Leti and Elise make an unlikely pair. Elise doesn't speak a word of Spanish and was raised Jewish. 
Leti is a devout Catholic who sees Elise coming to set up the school across the street as a blessing. Leti's hair is disheveled as she scrambles to carry boxes of donated milk and cereal up the steep stairs to the shelter. She used to focus a lot more on her appearance. She owned a beauty salon, traveled the world, lived an upper-class life here in Tijuana. But one day, everything changed. Her son was killed in a car accident. The only thing that saved her from her grief, she says, was her faith. A priest urged her to channel her pain into helping people. One day, a friend asked her to go to the border to pass out food to homeless migrants. Era, era una cosa que salías con el alma apachurrada. ¿Por qué? Porque la persona te limpiaba con una tortilla, te limpiaba las ollas para agarrar la comida. Decía, tenemos que hacer algo. She says it crushed her soul to see people so hungry they were wiping up every last drop from the pots and pans with tortillas. It made her feel like she hadn't really been doing anything meaningful with her life, ignoring other people's pain. Y empiezo a pensar cómo poner un albergue, cómo hacer para para tener una casa para ellos. She tried to figure out how she could house migrants like these. A Catholic charity helped her find a space to start a shelter. These days, it runs entirely on donations and grants. As more migrants have come to the border to seek asylum, more families want to stay here because this is the only shelter with a school. And the parents who volunteer at the nest have time and space to focus on playing with their children. And we have a no cell phone policy, and we have a rule that adults don't talk about adult problems in this space. We, we protect the sacredness of this place. This is about children, and the biggest problem can be, I want that and you got it first. As we're talking, Elise notices that one of the silk scarves three-year-old Kevin floated up into the air has caught on a ceiling fan way above his head. Kevin, you can't reach. What should we do? Elise encourages Kevin and some other kids to lug in a heavy ladder, then figure out where to position it to climb up and get the scarf down. I wonder if we move the ladder, if that would be helpful. This is the kind of autonomous decision-making kids need, she says, especially refugee kids who haven't had much choice in what's happened so far in their young lives. Yeah, now I see the mistakes I make with my own kids, not letting them do the things their way. We'll call this dad Alfredo, again to protect his identity since he's fleeing violence. He's been volunteering at the nest, playing with kids. Because I used to tell him, no, do it this way, because I said so. And I learned that I was wrong. Alfredo speaks English because he lived in Oakland in the Central Valley for decades. He returned to Mexico to build a house and start a business. But then he and his family were targeted by a cartel, escaped kidnappers, and fled to Tijuana, where they're applying for asylum in the U.S., Many parents at the shelter share these kinds of harrowing tales of near death and survival. Now, almost all the asylum seekers staying here are from Mexico, Guerrero and Michoacán. At the end of the day, Elise Schaefer-Ivy welcomes a dozen parents to the nest for an orientation. Wine and non-alcoholic beverages as well. And then we're going to gather right here for a short meeting 
She serves wine and cheese on little plates, just like at her high-end preschool in Santa Monica. And there's discussion of brain science and neural pathways, why memorizing ABCs and numbers isn't enough. So the more we talk to children about their ideas and ask them, oh, I wonder how that would work, not quizzing them, but just wondering with them, I wonder how that works, the more all of those parts of the brain are activated. Elise encourages the parents to try out the magnetic wall, the light table, the clay. And then, like the preschoolers do every day, the parents act in a short play they write. This one is by Kevin's mom, Julieta, and it's a take on Little Red Riding Hood. She pretends to be a grandmother, walking hunched over, her hands on her back, to meet a wolf. Letty and Elise say it's the first time they've seen Julieta smile. Then Julieta sits down at a child-size easel and paints a picture of a building that looks like a home. Is that your house or the shelter, I ask her. It's the nest, she says, a place where she and her son finally feel safe. The new fiction podcast, Moonface, is out this month. And in it, writer and creator James Kim introduces us to Paul Moon. He's a character much like himself, a young gay Korean-American who grew up in Downey. Paul works in a Chinese restaurant, and in this scene, he serves an old classmate. So, what are you up to now? Uh, You know, just serving here. Oh, (laughs) I know. But, like, weren't you trying to get into film school or something like that? Yeah, kind of. I was, um, I, I did sound art. Sound art? Yeah, uh, I recorded sounds in nature and made audio collages with them. Oh, 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 like that. I heard glad. Anyway, I ended up studying psychology instead, and now I'm here trying to pay off my student loans. Oh, I Paul told- still hangs out with his friends from high school. He still goes to the same dive bars. And like a lot of his friends, he still lives at home with his mom, who doesn't know what? he's gay. When? You marry. Hmm? Wife, uh, have kids. Mom, no. I'm not getting married anytime soon. Really? Where? Just because. Oh, crap. I think I'm going to be late for work. Thanks for breakfast, Mom. Oh, poor Papa. James Kim joins me now from Los Angeles to tell us about his new podcast. Hey, James. Hey, thanks for having me, Sasha. Before we go on, we should say Moonface is a podcast for adults because there is some yeah. very graphic audio of sex involved. So you might want yeah. not want to listen with your kids in the car. It's very true. Um, so, yeah. James, you and this character, Paul, do have a lot in common. Did you start out from the beginning trying to make a podcast that kind of blurs the lines between autobiography and fiction? There was just... Not a lot of fiction podcasts out there, and specifically ones that were geared towards queer people of color who just told really small, intimate stories. And here's this medium where it's just you have free reign. There's no gatekeepers and anyone can step into the space. And so me trying to step into the space, never writing a fiction show, never writing any sort of fiction at all. I I knew I had to start with something that I knew deeply and personally. So I just ended up writing something 
that was very closely related to my own personal experiences. I want to talk about the relationship between Paul and his mom, Gina. I mean, it's such a fraught relationship, like like most parent-child relationships. Um, and, I, you know, Paul carries that guilt that I think a lot of us who are second-gen children of immigrants experience. You know, he doesn't know how to speak Korean. He's not fully mm-hmm. sharing his identity with his mom. How close is that to, to your own story with your parents? Uh, it's it's pretty close. Um, I remember I was watching a lot of home videos at the time of writing this uh, script, and when I was like six or seven, and I was actually shocked at how much Korean I was speaking in these like little home videos. And I talked to my parents about it, and you know they said that the older I got, the more I kind of almost rejected learning Korean. Um, they started me off where they didn't want to take me to any sort of Korean language schools because they really wanted me to assimilate. Like they came from Korea and immigrated here, and they sacrificed a lot for me to have a better life. But my mom doesn't speak English well, and I don't speak Korean well. It's getting much better, but. There is that struggle of trying to have basic conversations, and, and we're just not able to communicate. Are you out to your parents? Because you certainly will be now after this podcast comes out. <laughs> I'm actually not going to tell them that this podcast exists. No. Um, I am out to my, my parents, and um, it, it's, uh, yeah, they, they um, oh man, this is funny. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to get into it. You know, I decided to come out to my parents um, when I was moving to Texas and I was in my early to mid-20s. And we don't talk about anything personal. Like, we just don't. So I don't know how they're going to react. And it was like 11 p.m. at night and my mom's in the kitchen and she's helping me pack for to, to leave for Texas. And I just told her, like, hey, mom, I'm gay. And she's just like, yeah, okay. Okay, uh, you know that that's uh, that's your choice, your life. <laughs> and she just kind of left it at that, and um, and and then eventually I ended up telling my dad too. And you know, it, it's a weird relationship where you know my mom is very open and and um, very uh, accepting of it, and and my dad is still processing the whole situation. I love how Downey is kind of a character in this show too. I mean, what really <laughs> comes across is how much Paul loves this place that, you know, to some might be this boring suburb. And, you know, I feel this deeply having grown up in a suburb of L.A. myself. You know, it's not the glamorous (laughs) part. What did you want people to take away from this show about Downey? When you grow up there, people very much hate it. It's 20 miles outside of everything amazing in Los Angeles. It's 20 miles away from Hollywood. It's 20 miles away from the beach. It's 20 miles away from Disneyland. But right there in Downey, there is nothing. It's 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 impossible. So growing up, it, it just was that true kind of like suburban, I want to get out of here, a Smith song kind of vibe. And, you know, later <laughs> later down the line it's, and, and growing up and, and finding more about the city, it's just something where a lot of people my age have this strange but also awesome pride about living in that city. I think it's because it has such a rich history of the Apollo program and the carpenters are from there. And, um, you know, you have the oldest operating McDonald's over there and just these cultural landmarks. There's so many businesses opening up that are independent and artistic. And that's kind of the vibe and story that I really wanted to highlight about this, this city of Downey that I've just come to love. And Paul's friends are all people of color who grew up 
in Downey like you did. And and they're all facing Mm -hmm. a lot of issues, you know, trying to get ahead at work, everything from microaggressions to people stealing their ideas, presenting them as their (laughs) own. And and they all live with their parents, too. I mean, it's kind of the situation that a lot of folks find themselves in in their 20s these days. Every time that question comes up of, oh, where do you live, especially in Los Angeles, you can kind of tell people are very uncomfortable right when they introduced the idea of living with their parents still in their late 20s. And I just wanted to make something where like people aren't like characters in the show aren't ashamed of living at home. It's a situation where it's not just financial, but, you know, especially with immigrant uh, families, like you're almost expected to live at home because they want you to help out. And when your parents are getting older, they want someone to be there to take care of them. So it's something where even though I've moved out of my house, I'm going back to Downey every single weekend because I'm trying to take care of my parents and, and help them out. But they also just want to see me and hang out. You know, one of the things Paul talks about in his podcast class and that they really wrangle over is this whole question of audience. You know, who are you making this for? Yeah. Who do you see as the audience for Moonface? Yeah, this is going to be a selfish answer. And the audience was just me. Throughout my entire career in public radio and podcasting, that was one of the very first things I always thought about, like, who am I making this for? And I was always making projects for very specific audiences, but not particularly, you know, just for me. And really, I was just like, I just want to make something that I purely just deeply enjoy. And if I make something like that and other people enjoy it, great. But if nobody enjoys it, but I still enjoy it, then for me, I'm still happy because it's something that I can say I'm proud of because I was just making it for me. Hmm. Well, I think you're going to be making it for a way bigger audience than just one person. (laughs) 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 Given how quickly I and others have gobbled it down and binged on it. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, James Kim, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me, Sasha. James Kim is the creator of the new fiction podcast, Moonface. Hey, baby. How are you? And now to an L.A. country club, where the first thing you see when you walk in is a table covered in high school superlatives. There's a sign for homecoming queen, school stud, high school sweethearts, and in huge glittery numbers, 1977. How are you? This isn't your typical high school reunion because just as this class was graduating, their country was gripped by revolutionary riots. As teenagers, most of them left Iran as it became an Islamic republic. Reporter Asala Sanapur tells us that on this 40th anniversary of the Iranian revolution, this reunion takes them back to a place that feels a world away. Members of the class of 77 take the stage to relive memories from their school days. This alum remembers a prank he and his friends pulled on the art teacher in ninth grade. And this one has just caught a glimpse of his very first crush. Oh, she's right there with a white dress. She's beautiful. She hasn't changed. And before I can get his name, he's off to profess his love. All of these partygoers attended Etifog, an Iranian Jewish school that spans kindergarten through 12th grade. And full disclosure, I know about it because my mom went there for high school. In Farsi, Be'etifog means together. And that togetherness is exactly how people tell me they feel tonight, regardless of how much time has passed, where they live, or even their religion. 
I'm actually a good example of that. Mandana Vasic is one of the reunion organizers living in L.A. She's Muslim, but she says that in a country where Jews and Muslims rarely integrated, Etifag was a place where all of that didn't matter. I even carried the Torah and morning prayers when we went to the temple, you know. It was just my love and passion for my friends. I never thought of them being Jewish or Muslim or rich or poor. We were just friends. In fact, Etifag reflected all of Iran's religious minorities, like Christians, Baha'is, and Zoroastrians. The English language curriculum was rigorous, and it was also one of the few co-ed schools in all of Iran, which women like Maryam Aryan tell me inspired them to pursue high-achieving, powerhouse careers. Men and women were raised side by side with the same level of expectation. Just because we were a woman, we weren't granted this pass that, oh, you're going to get married. We were very competitive and uh, very studious. And so students say the school was a microcosm of Iran as a whole, diverse, egalitarian, and free. Iran was just a good place at the time, I'm telling you. And it was really hard to leave all of that behind. Comedian and filmmaker Fariborz Davudian transferred to a high school in the U.S. before the revolution to avoid the mandatory draft but he still can't shake the Iranian identity that sits in his core. Somehow it's in my blood and I cannot avoid it. Sometimes I tell myself, I've been here 40 plus years, why do I care so much? But I care because I was born there and Farsi is my first language and uh, my ancestors were all Persian and I remember the Iran the way it was and I see the Iran of today and it's a tragedy to me. But some people chose to stay in Iran, like one woman, a doctor. She didn't want to use her name because it's dangerous for people still living in Iran to talk to Western media. She says that even with the travel ban, she was able to come using a U.S. visa after stopping in Canada. Tell me why it was important for you to come all this way from Iran to be here. <laughs> because I think that these, these people are um, the most important ones in my life. It was amazing. Now it is more amazing. <laughs> the doctor lost contact with a lot of friends after graduation, but she got back in touch recently when her classmate Maury Shamuni started a WhatsApp group. Within days, he tracked down the entire class of 77. Like many Jewish people in the group, Maurice left Iran for fear of religious persecution. When I left Iran in 1977, if you would have told me that in 42 years I will be living in the United States, having my own business, even have a family here, I would have laughed. Today, Morris lives in LA, but he still carries the memory of the streets in Tehran where he used to play soccer, and the people from the corner store where he'd pick up groceries for his mom. We had a real connection to that community, which uh, I carry that with me on a continuous basis, and that's my Iran, and that's my country, and uh, those are my people. But the Iran of today is unrecognizable, and so is Etifag. It's still a Jewish school, but it's all girls and government-run. Maury says that, in a way, this reunion is the closest thing to going back in time. We are still living with the memory of what we experienced then, and today actually is just a celebration of that memory. A memory that they're celebrating together, Be'etifag. But the word etifog also translates to something that happened. Maurice and the class of 77 say this place that only exists in memory is actually very real. Their lives before kids and grandkids, before the revolution, 
before scattering around the world. For the California Report, I'm Asala Sanapur in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. And before we go, I've got something really exciting to tell you. We're having a live storytelling event all about the California dream, November 21st in San Francisco. We'll have some of your favorite reporters performing stories, plus dance, music, and more. You can find more details at kqed.org events. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and our team also includes Asala Sanapur, Minnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from California Earthquake Authority, a not-for-profit offering earthquake insurance to help Californians protect their financial futures. For more information, go to earthquakeauthority.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. Knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.